Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 285, recorded May 24th, and I'm Brian Aachen. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Mark Little. I'm Ben Cosby. Nice. Welcome, Ben. Welcome, Mark. So, Michael, uh, you you have this story of why you brought Mark and Ben on. Yeah, I did bring Mark and Ben on. Mark and I have been really good friends for a long time, but that's not why he's here. He's here because he's been sharing this Python journey that he and Ben have both been on. Uh, they come from law, like being lawyers and bankers and stuff, and they've found their way over to writing software in Python. And it's been so fun to watch you guys come along. And you recently showed me the release of one of your SaaS products built with Python and, and Pyramid and other things. And I thought it was just super cool. So I thought you could maybe share just a little bit of that before we kick off the main topics to kind of inspire people who are not, you know, traditional CS folks, and they can still build amazing things. You want to Tell us yeah. both a bit about uh, yourself and then tell us a bit about your, your thing. Uh, I'll say first that I'm strictly the hobbyist. Um, so uh, <laughs> we, uh, it's definitely been a collaboration and, and, and quite a journey. And then I'll talk a little bit about how we got started because you play an instrumental role in that, Michael. But um, so we've released this product called LexChart that builds corporate organizational structures automatically. And these charts are uh, kind of weird. They're, they're sort of like... Uh, you know, human resources, organizational charts, except that for legal entities, they're much more complicated. And so uh, we've built some automation in Python, principally in the server side, that generates these hierarchies automatically. And they can be quite elaborate. So for example, some of them we release uh, publicly and uh, we've been building these things with our own app and releasing them. So here's one for Elon Musk, for example. This is before the early stages of his Twitter uh, acquisition. but our app does a lot of this layering uh, automatically. And those things um, can be quite stunningly complicated. So here's one, for example, with you know thousands of legal entities in the corporate structure of Blackstone. And Goodness, so crazy. we've actually got some Python that sort of automates the presentation and structure of all that. And then, as you say, it's using Pyramid and uh, Chameleon and SQL Alchemy, um, and then a lot of uh, you know legal and business finance expertise as well. But it's been quite an exciting journey. And so, um, you know, we were excited to share this with you and uh, and look forward to sort of talking about some of the piece parts that are in the product that might be useful to the broader uh, community as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Some of the stuff you guys are going to cover today as our main topic sort of were extracted out of the building of this, right? Yeah. All right, Ben, ben anything you want to add to that? And maybe just tell people about yourself real quick? As you pointed out, and Mark too, uh, you know, whenever I'm trying to explain to somebody what I do now, I always say, well, I'm a reformed barbarian at the gate. I trade buyouts and IPOs and a suit on Wall Street or, you know, code and in my office at home and in my pajamas uh, kind of thing. And, and uh, but we've, as Mark talked about, we've kind of merged those couple of things together. So these days I spend a lot of my time with Python on the front end and, and JavaScript, sorry, JavaScript on the front end and Python on the back end and DevOps and all sorts of things, you know, sort of have to do it all. But I, I also wanted to say kind of as part of our journey for your, for your listeners, I'd be remiss if I, I didn't, even though I didn't warn you beforehand, I was going to do this, but, uh, you know, along this way of kind of, you know, going from, you know, suits and, and deals and IPOs and things like that, uh, you know, Michael's talk Python training for, I'm sure lots of people on this podcast are familiar, but if you're not, you know, those courses were pretty instrumental for, for us and for, for those we work with in, uh, you know, evolving and, uh, and, and, and making Python, Python now is. Uh, completely central to uh, to our business and, and what we do. So uh, it's been fun to get here. <laughs> Thank, thanks for the shout out, Ben. I appreciate it. 
I would just say too, we've been able to leverage that. And like, we've got some pretty uh, complex math and graph theory, like in the core of our app. So we've been able to like take, you know, Michael's classes and, and really sort of leverage them in a much uh, bigger way um, than I think a lot of people expect or, or imagine they can when they start some of these online classes. So, uh, you know, your training in particular has been exceptional. Thanks, Mark. I, I just think what you guys have built is looks so much more polished than somebody, a couple of guys who taught themselves programming a few years ago. And I just, I, I love it. So su super good work. Brian, should we, yeah, should we kick awesome. it off? No, this is just great. I'm, I'm, I'm blown away. It looks awesome. So yeah, let's kick it off. Yeah, I, I was too. And I think some of the stuff that we're going to talk about is going to uh, certainly be, be part of that. So let's talk. Um, oh, whoop. yeah. Nope. Wrong one. Uh, I'm up next, right, Brian? Yeah. Sorry. All right. I have, I have a whole bunch of extras, folks. So let me just, I'm going to start with like a quick one for one of our main topics here that maybe. Uh, we may have to cut you off. Um, I know. You might have to cut me off. So check this out, Brian. If I go over to pypi.org and I go look for something like, let me look at Beanie. I don't know if I get that right. Actually, I don't think that's going to help. Right. Let me look for SwitchLang, which is my Switch implementation I added to Python, I don't know, a couple years ago. So if you look over here on the left, oh, I think it's being blocked. But over here, um, there it says, here's your avatar from Gravatar for uh, M. Kennedy. But my little, I don't know, my browser settings are, are blocking that or whatever. But so this is a, a thing you see a lot of the times. And like, where, where, do you get, where do you get these little Gravatars? Right? So if you have users and you have users who have emails, do you want to show something about them? There's a chance that over in Gravatar, there's going to be some profile for them, different images, things like that. So if you're in Python and you want to add Gravatar features to your site, it is ridiculous using this thing called libgravatar. Oh, wow. So all okay. you got to do with libgravatar is you go and you create an instance of one of these objects, Gravatars, you pass it an email, and you can say get image, you give it a size and potentially a file extension if you uh, want to control that or anything or whether or not you want to use SSL. And then it gives you back this non-reversible URL that is the image of that person based on the size that you asked for, who they are, and so on. And if they don't exist, you get the standard Gravatar logo, just like a little circle type thing. And so this is some kind of hash algorithm that you have to follow based on their email address to pull them back and so on. But if you want to add the kind of Gravatar look and feel, then like literally Gravatar object, give it the email address, dot get image. And that's pretty neat. It goes from one to 248 pixels on the image size. So uh, I'm not sure one super useful, like you get one dot, but you know, maybe you want it to be kind of like a particular, like a shade of the person is all you're going to get, I guess. Uh, Even but like a five you, by five would be fun, you know, just a, just a few it pixels. Would. It would. Uh, so you can do a get profile, which will then give you access to the user and see all of their email addresses, all of their information about them. And so on. So there's a little bit more that you can actually. Oh yeah, yeah. There's this whole shadow profile that's built up by like you know the surveillance ad tech industry. Yeah. It's only five bucks to use. No, just kidding. But you can get like more details about them through their profile if you really want. But basically, the main use case is given an email. Can I get a picture without hassling this person to upload a picture? Maybe. And um, just so, if anybody's not familiar with Gravatar, it's um, it's owned by Automatic, who does WordPress. So uh, all the WordPress people use it and. That's why it's like well supported and it's not too evil or anything like that. So yeah, and like I said, PyPI.org uses it, so that's that's the start. Mark Ben, what do you guys think? Do you have user pictures in your your app, or do you worry about this kind of stuff? We no, we, we don't. We don't. 
We don't in Let's Sharp, uh, but it's funny because uh, we at the at the very beginning of our journey, we implemented a little question and answer app as like a demo to make sure that you know we could like justify going down to Python. And I used Gravatar in there. This actually is a pretty cool library because I remember in that app, I really was just focused on Python, but I had to you know fall back on some JavaScript in order to put the Gravatar uh, icons in there. But it is a great Gravatar is is really useful. I'd encourage your you know, your, your listeners, if you're looking for something, because the nice thing, as you said, is it'll just generate like this automatic little drawing, even if they don't have an image. So you can kind of create a, a nice look and feel for your site, for your user profiles, where everybody gets some sort of a, a graphic, even if they haven't uploaded anything. It's kind of a nice little, uh, nice little tool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Kim Van Wyck out in the audience says, one pixel gravatars might be useful for building images, like displaying contributor, uh, contributors and stuff. Maybe not one, but you could do like 10 by 10 and you could build up, to, uh, you know, a, a montage of all the people or something that people oh, and you also um ben you also have a, a some cheering folks in the audience which is lovely <laughs> <laughs> so go, go ben good to have you here all right um brian over to you uh, this i'm very excited about when i first saw this i'm like oh you don't really need that uh pydantic does it sounds oh wait no this is amazing tell me tell so this is this is so cool um it's a little thing that was suggested by tune lee uh it's adjacent to pydantic converter um, and uh, Jay, or Chun said, this awesome JSON to Pydantic is so useful. It literally saves me days of work with complex uh, nested JSON schema. So the idea is you've got, basically it's just this website with like, you know, a, a JSON side and a Pydantic side. And I've got one prepared. I went and copied one from somewhere. And so if we go over and just replace the, the simple one with like a more complex one, paste it in there. And then it just generates the Pydantic model, and um, it's pretty awesome. Uh, there's a couple op so, options. So you for can people give who it. are listening, it's not that it converts JSON to Pydantic; it converts JSON okay. to Pydantic code. Yeah, it writes the code that you would have to write for the Pydantic <laughs> to understand what you put. It's amazing. I love it. Right. Um, and then some of the options are cool. You might not use it for everything, but just knowing the syntax for it. So if you if you drop a give them optional. It'll uh, it'll tell you where you, where to put optional in your model to make it all work right, and it's like this one's only just showing up at the bottom. So anyway, uh, and then the oh, nice. the last one is aliasing camel case. I didn't know you could do this aliasing camel case for snake case. So if you're if you're using I guess both camel case and snake case, you can have them work. I don't know. A lot of times, if really. you're consuming a JSON API that's written in another language, the variable names are idiomatic to that language. So like C sharp would be a rep or JavaScript would represent this one where you've got like the camel casing, but that would not be how you would want to call it in Python. So you can say, well, give me the Python version, but allow Pydantic to find the other size. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, the, the, one of the neat things about this that I really love is it's an open source project. So at the bottom, there's a link. Um, it takes you to the, uh, to, to the, just the open source page. And this is built with fast API. Um, and create React app, which is pretty cool, and then a uh, data model code generator. So it's a, like that's doing the most of the work. So if you want to do this yourself uh, uh, somewhere else, by you know embed it within your tool chain or something like that, you can do this. Um, so I, I don't know why you'd yeah. regenerate it all the time though, but I, it's just super but, kind of fun to just drop drop some JSON a JSON example of a of good one in there and drop it in. But it's fantastic. If you're going to consume an API and you say, here's a specification of what I'm going to get back, boom, you're halfway there. Or you're a consultant, you pick up somebody else's code and you're like, I want to use Pydantic here. This is great. 
Anthony on the audience says, oh, come on. I could have used this last week. <laughs> uh, you guys, what do you think of this? That's really cool. We, we have a project where we're looking at migrating from a different tech stack uh, to Python. And, you know, one of our output sources there is JSON. So I'm looking at this and, you know, wondering, you know, Ben, this might be an opportunity for us to, you know, uh, get there a little quicker uh, for some of that data. Yeah. Um, that is cool, migration. especially for prototyping or something where, yeah. you know, you just want to see and you want to spend three days seeing <laughs> what it's going to look like. Yeah, this is pretty cool. Yeah. 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 It's, it's very cool. Nice um, also, also another, I mean, we get this all the time, but I just want to remind people, this was a suggestion from a listener. And that's one of the neat things about the podcast is people can find cool things and send them in and then we can share it with everybody. It's nice. Absolutely. That's like half of our, our topics are that, right? All right, Mark, you're up with the next one. <laughs> awesome. So uh, this is not a uh, Python library and it's probably well known to most of your listeners, but I wanted to just talk about a few Tailwind uh, CSS things that people, if you're only sort of casually aware of Tailwind, might help you jumpstart. Um, we are an aggressive user of Tailwind um, and, and some of the components. Uh, the other piece I want to talk about is Tailwind UI, which is not open source. So Tailwind CSS is completely free uh, from Tailwind Labs. Uh, but Tailwind uh, UI is um, it's behind a paywall. But these are pre-built components by the creators of Tailwind. So there are lots of people building components for Tailwind, but Tailwind UI is specifically built by the people who created Tailwind in the first instance. And it's interesting to me, I know that both of you have, have a lot of interest in user interface design around uh, Python and web apps, and Tailwind certainly is a part of that theme. And it's also interesting for the business model piece about how to turn sort of open source into sort of a revenue generating model. So you can use Tailwind and never need Tailwind UI, but if you need examples or references, uh, Tailwind UI um, is a fantastic resource. And so I thought I would just show, uh, they've got widgets, basically pre-built components uh, around marketing or app UIs, and then a new sort of e-commerce section. And to give you an example, there's really low level granular stuff. Like if you want a little stats component, um, you can come in here, they'll show you what it looks like. They've designed several options um, you can see what they are like responsively, and then you can actually see the code, and they'll give you the code in raw HTML, React, or Vue. Um, and some of them need see it, uh, JavaScript as well. They'll give you hints around what to do with the JavaScript if that's necessary. But this is an example of that little stats widget with all of the sort of tailwind classes built in there that you can grab and reuse. Um, and we have found it really useful for creating this sort of really professional sort of user interface experience. And our app, so for example, um, if I just uh, quickly create one, like our toolbar here is a couple of chameleon templates with Tailwind running around each of these buttons to keep them consistent, which also means that at different resolutions, the buttons will look different. So if I'm at a, on a larger screen, there will actually be help text underneath each of these buttons. They get smaller. All of that's done really nicely in Tailwind. And then we can, because it's a chameleon template running in our Python stack, we can use those toolbars in a variety of circumstances and have really granular, nice, intuitive control of them. So, uh, you know, between Tailwind CSS and Tailwind UI, these are sort of great resources to get familiar and up and running with it. There have been a few yeah. people. This is so, Mark, this is okay. so nice. I, just to give people a sense of like some of the size of the building blocks is 
we've all gone to the websites where you click pricing, for example, and it's got like the three yeah. columns and one's a little bigger and it says this is the most common or whatever. Yes. Like that is just a drop in right. element <laughs> here yes. in this. And it's so, this is the pricey one, so for example. beautiful, right? Yeah. yeah. And what's this is the best thing about Tailwind from my perspective is it's built uh, pr principally uh, by Adam Wathen and Steve Schroger. And um, Adam, I, I'm probably grossly oversimplifying this, would be the technical um, <laughs> component of this. And Steve is the design element. And they have some great resources. If you just, Steve Schroger has some wonderful videos where he sort of recomposes user interfaces and and he's got a book out on refactoring uh, UI uh, that I think you can add to the show notes but you're basically standing on the shoulders of these giants right they they these are fantastic design principles yes i'm sure there are people that are better than me at doing this but i know that steve and adam have done a fantastic job in using these components even if i need to tweak them i learn a lot there are a lot of comments that people will learn a lot about css just watching them work and seeing how these components are built um, Tailwind automatically handles lots of cool edge cases, and you see that when you look at these components. And they're, you know, everything is built to be responsive from the beginning, and and they're just lovely to work with. Um, yeah. yeah, it's also super nice. fast. So there are a bunch of components. They their latest release has made their just in time compiler um, native, so it's built in. Uh, uh, it does generate a lot of CSS, but it will only do that if you're actually using you know, certain classes or components. Um, and so it's just been uh, fantastic to work with. I will also say we used this in a recent project. Um, you can actually drop Tailwind into an existing project and avoid conflicts with existing CSS. There's a way to have a custom prefix on all the Tailwind classes and both PyCharm and VS Code will, their Tailwind plugins will adapt to that prefixing. So for example, wow. instead of it, you know, if you need padding, you you just append or prepend TW hyphen to the classes, um, to the Tailwind classes, and VS Code and PyCharm will pick up that prefix. You, they'll still give you all the helps and prompts for Tailwind, and you'll avoid all the conflicts with your existing CSS. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and then finally, I'd say it's just it's great with you know template languages. So whether it's Chameleon or Jinja or Mako. Um, it's really nice because you're just looking at that little bit of HTML in those templates and you can just put the classes right there in the HTML um, and uh, have a high confidence in what that's going to look like. Brian, have you played with this any? Uh, no, but one of the things I, I was uh, uh, having a con I did a little consult with a uh, somebody trying to get a startup off the ground and uh, I was looking at their site and I was like, man, your site looks awesome. Did you hire somebody? And uh, they said, no, I'd use Tailwind UI. Um, and, mm -hmm. um, and the, actually, so that's, that's the thing the the sweet spot, I think is somebody that like maybe took, uh, the Michael's entrepreneurial course or something, and just a, like one or two people that are trying to get a business off the ground. You don't have any money. You can't hire somebody. Um, or maybe you do, but often you don't. So uh, it might a, just be like, too early to worry about that. Right. Yeah. So yeah. starting off the ground with a professional looking site, um, is there, I think that's a great way to start. So, and yes, it's not and free, would, but it's also not out of the realm of a start, a small startup. Yeah, I would add, we've used a lot of frameworks. We've used Bootstrap, of course, Semantic. Um, we've used a lot of these things. And what Tailwind is nice, particularly Tailwind UI, Tailwind in general, but Tailwind UI as well, is they will give you full page references. So if I scroll down here, you'll see, for example, there's this page example. So if you need a landing page, they will show you what an entire landing page looks like, but 
you don't have to take the entire page. If you want to assemble these components individually into your own page structure, you can certainly do that. So, you know, here's a feature section. Um, it doesn't include any of the other stuff, but these are, if you like this feature presentation, you can go grab just this bit and mix and match it. So unlike a lot of the theme kind of frameworks where you have this entire theme that just sort of stomps all over your design, you can actually get a custom looking output uh, with Tailwind that's still consistent. So it's a nice balance between, you know, pretty modular granular control, but still a consistent look of the entire app or website. And and I have no doubt that like the the stuff behind it, like how much CSS is there and the size, it's probably going to be a heavier site than having somebody custom write all this stuff, but it's also going to be cheaper. So <laughs> yeah, and th that is true. What they have done, they have a just in time compiler that really minimizes the amount of CSS they produce. And then of course you can do, they recommend using post CSS and a number of other things like CSS nano to sort of reduce the size of those uh, files we still get very high performance. So keep in mind, sort of our app is built entirely with Tailwind, plus we're doing a lot of math uh, on the server side and we get you know very small sub-second returns uh, on our pages um, as a result, even with all that stuff. Yeah, that's cool. I, I, you've definitely inspired me, Mark, to think about rewriting some of, a lot of what I've been doing in, in Tailwind and it'll get there. I'm just not there yet. Got, yeah. got other stuff right. to work on first. <laughs> all right, before we move on, Brian, I take a moment to tell you all about our sponsor? Yes. Yeah, so this week, the show is brought to you by Compiler, the Compiler podcast from Red Hat. Just like everyone on the show and everyone listening, Brian and I are fans of podcasts, and I'm super happy to share Compiler with you. Comes to you from Red Hat, a well-respected open source company we all know of, I'm sure. So with more, of, more and more of us working from home, it's important to keep our human connection with technology and Compiler unravels industry topics and trends, things you've always wanted to know about in tech, um, all the way up to interviews uh, with people who know it best. So on Compiler, you'll hear a course of perspectives from diverse communities behind the code. Conversations include questions like, what is technical debt or what are tech managers actually looking for? And do you have to know how to code to get an open source? I was actually a guest on Red Hat's previous podcast, Command Line Heroes, and Compiler is following along in that same tradition of being an excellent produced and polished show. So actually the, the show that they just released, When Should Data Die? I think is you know, one of those cool sort of philosophical questions of, you know, should, should data have a lifetime? Should your data be able to outlive you? All those kinds of things are pretty interesting. So I recommend people check it out. Just visit pythonbytes.fm slash compiler. The link is in your podcast show notes. I know we're all smart developers who are listening. You can just search for compiler in your podcast player, but please sign up by clicking that link and then clicking your podcast player. It'll help them know it came from us. So thank you to Red Hat and Compiler for supporting the show. All right. Uh, I guess I'm still up, huh, Brian? So let's talk peps. This pep is this pep is pretty interesting. This comes to us from Itamar. It's by Jermaine Bravo and Carl Meyer, sponsored by Barry Warsaw. And it's something honestly I haven't I'm surprised it hasn't been covered or addressed yet. I think I think this comes out of Meta's Cinder project where they're trying to do a whole bunch of performance improvements, but I'm not 100% sure. So take that with a grain of salt. Basically, the idea is right now what happens when I write some Python code, I'll write at the top, import requests, import Beanie, import fast API. What happens when I import Beanie? Well, inside Beanie, it says import motor, import Pydantic. What happens inside motor? It says import. Right, there's just this 
transitive closure of at the top of all of these projects, each one of them is importing something and like parsing and, and compiling the Python code as in, um, you know, into abstract syntax trees into memory and stuff like that. All of that happens when I write one import line, right? That's, that's a lot. But what if there's different paths in my code and only some of the time maybe I'm using Pydantic or only later in the app am I actually using fast API, but not right away. And sometimes you might not use them at all, right? I could do a bunch of data science imports, but only if a certain function runs, do I care? So this PEP, this PEP 960 says, well, let's not do that. Let's not like preload every possible path that you might run when you're going to use a library. Let's wait until you use it. So that import fast API kind of just hangs there until I say fast API dot. And soon as that first line of code runs there, then the import happens. So mm-hmm. you don't have this transitive closure of all these, these imports if you're not actually going to use them. So it helps with startup time and it also maybe helps with overall performance if not every bit of code runs. I want this. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. It looks, it looks cool, right? Um, one yeah, of the you can things spend that... a lot of time in startup just because of all the import statements. Yeah, one of the things that um, that I face a lot uh, with helping people is with uh, Py, PyTest. So PyTest um, imports your code. So it does it when it when it's well, it imports your tests, and then the tests it'll import your code to to run your code. But if you're running, if you're gonna like, for instance, ray run, stop on the first failure, you're not gonna hit a whole bunch of that code, and so avoiding avoiding those and getting to start earlier it would help help that. Um, and you yeah. know, that's just one example of startup time being helped. Now, I'm curious about how it how, how if it'll affect runtime early on. Otherwise, you know, at post startup, there's some conversations about compatibility. So, what could happen is there could be side effects that happen because of the import. Right, you're not supposed to make changes to the system, but but that's arbitrary code running during your import statement. Right, so it could have an effect. Um, so theoretically this could change things and they refer to the, not the lazy ones as eager imports. Um, but they do talk about how some of these, uh, you'll have to pass a, a runtime flag to the Python interpreter or set an environment variable for this to happen by default. It won't happen by default. It's off by default. Hmm. So for better or worse, maybe someday that'll change, but right now. That's pretty cool. I like it. Yeah. Yep. Indeed. Ben, Mark, you guys have thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I agree. I think this is you know, really interesting from the from the front end world where I spend a lot of time too. I mean, I have, there's a billion analogs for this. We do all kinds of jumping through hoops, you know, from the old day code splitting in the old days and all kinds of, you know, uh, web back and a million other roll up and all mm-hmm. sorts of ways of, you know, trying to take advantage of this on the client side, you know, because of the browser. But I can actually imagine a lot of situations using Python where you know, what in one app, you know, maybe it is just limited to, you know, that, that moment of startup, but I can imagine a lot of situations where the way that your app or your service is being used is causing that, you know, uh, initial, uh, run event to, uh, you know, to, to be an experience that the user is having on a more frequent basis, you know, based on what you're doing or what you've constructed. So that's actually yeah. really cool. And I haven't thought much about this, but I kind of agree with you sort of surprised now that I see it, that this should have always done this, more right? conversation before. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I also wonder if it allows you to have code that can be less, have more optional dependencies installed. So uh, like, for example, I think it was a fast API 
there's some support for form stuff you have to install as a separate pip dependency. And here, you could just write that code and unless you actually run it, it doesn't matter if you have import that thing that's missing because not until does it try to use it, is it gonna be a problem. So it might allow you to write simpler code. Let's see, out in the audience, Eddie Bergman says, I feel like with it opt-in, many people won't know to use it, but making it opt-out could break so many systems depending on the behavior. So yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know what the right choice is, so I guess the safe one is to just opt-out or to opt, make people opt-in. Yeah. And Beanie, the author of, uh, sorry, Roman Wright, the author of Beanie, gives it a, a, definitely a thumbs up for this idea as well. So support for some framework authors there as well. All right, uh, Brian, what do you got for your last one here? Hope it's something uh, well, rich for us. Well, I've got a couple of things that a couple of these are small, so it's sort of a a, a multi grab bag. Um, Pytest Rich. So this is um, this is a plugin for Pytest that uses Rich. Uh, not much more to say other than it's kind of cool to to use uh, use Rich to have some nice output. Um, uh, this was uh, done by Bruno Oliveira, who is um, he's one of the core people on Pytest, and also the only other person on the planet that I know of that has written a book focused on Pytest. Um, but cool guy. Uh, the, the he's he said this is a proof of concept and he'd love for somebody else to take it over. But it doesn't look like it's like dead or anything. It's, good, it's some activity. So anyway, I think this is fun. So uh, cool opportunity for people to jump in if they want to. Nice. The uh, uh, question from the audience, Brian: How's it compared to pie test sugar? I haven't. I, I haven't used sugar for a really long time. Uh, but you can look at the image. So it looks like a similar to sugar but with sugar doesn't have these cool rich tracebacks in it so yeah there's that yeah indeed so the next nice. thing i wanted to talk about before we move on to somebody else is um is a short little thing um this was a, a recommended by actually the pytest rich was recommended by brian skin thanks brian and then uh this is recommended by henrik finsberg is uh a video by anthony sotilli um on how to get images in readmes. And I guess I didn't know how to do this. We encourage, and I, I wanted to bring this up because we encourage everybody to put pictures and animated GIFs and all that sort of stuff in your readme so that when we re-review stuff, we can see what it does. Uh, it helps, um, but it's not hard. Um, it's So Anthony goes through this little thing of like, you don't have to put the image in your repo. You just have to drop it into a comment field or in a repo edit field and um, and then GitHub will just put it on a CDN somewhere. So the image is just there. So some magic there. Kind of trick GitHub into That's uploading cool. it and then not actually. Well, I mean, since the, the, the readme supports it, it's interesting. Anthony talks, talks about going, using the, using, uh, a, a edit, a comment field of your issues to drop a picture in, and then you get the URL from that. But if you just go into your readme, uh, in within github on the web interface and edit there you can also drop it there and and it just works fine um i guess maybe he's thinking that you're probably not going to edit your readme directly you'll probably edit it locally and push it in you can still do that but anyway it's neat yeah very That's nice cool. yeah. yeah people should definitely have pictures and explanations and, and charts and all the sort of stuff in there their readme so this is great yeah i I would just add more generally, you know, docs and tutorials can be a strategic asset when done well. You know, Tailwind does this amazingly well. EdgeDB does it really well. DigitalOcean is off the chart in the comprehensiveness and thoroughness of there. And those things become an asset for the business instead of an annoyance, you know, that you have to do. The the docs actually become valuable for the project or the yeah. business. 
Yeah. yeah. Do you want to be there or do you regret that you have to go there, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> All right, Ben, you want to take us out of here with your final main topic? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, part of our uh, the latest project, uh, Lex Chart, that Mark's talked a little bit about, you know, one of the things that we had to do, despite the fact that, uh, uh, you know, as we were getting close to it, I realized you can use Lex Chart for a lot of things that maybe, you know, we didn't think about when my 12 year old daughter sent me, uh, uh, and I spun her up a, a, an account so she could tinker with it. So I could kind of get a, a interesting test case out of somebody that has like no connection to what we're doing. And, uh, she sent me a little, uh, organization chart of Encanto characters and their family tree from the movie Encanto, uh, nice. which I wasn't expecting, but, uh, she's not really our, uh, uh, typical, typical user and, and, uh, you know, with our target audience who looks a lot like, uh, you know, I did in my former life, um, you know, security is a big, big deal, uh, with our clients. And so one of the things we obviously have to look at is, you know, we need to implement some multi-factor, uh, authentication and, you know, initially my you know, knee-jerk reaction to that was, okay, yeah, we'll just do what everybody does and, you know, we'll, we'll you know, set it up and you'll get an SMS message on your phone and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but as I looked at that more and thought about some of the conversations we'd had, uh, with, with clients, uh, 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 some of our other, uh, software, uh, you know, I wondered you know, how long is that really gonna last? Because there's a number of kind of real security issues with, um, uh, with SMS, not least of which is, you know, just the way voice networks are built, everything's sent in, in clear text. It's actually really not that hard to, uh, yeah, uh, yeah it, you know, it tell, works, but people do look down together. upon it a little bit. They're like, uh, this is not quite real security. This is better than nothing, but right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's, and it's not to say, you know, you know, you make me a point it's, 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 it's everywhere. Everyone's using it. And, you know, by the way, yeah, absolutely. You know, password plus MFA, even with MSF, SMS, is great. It's so much better than the password only from a security standpoint. Uh, so it's not a knock on it. You know, I just yeah. thought, well, maybe we need to step one more step forward here and, and see if there's some other other things. And so, uh, you know, I was looking for a library that could help us with one-time password stuff and specifically one that could help us with time-based uh, one-time password implementations, which is something that uh, I think Google really ultimately started uh, this way back. And yeah. that's why a lot of people associate this with the Google Authenticator app. Um, but there's actually a lot of authenticators. It's an open standard. Um, and it really is closely connected to what's happening when you do it with SMS or with email. Both of those are similar in that, you know, both of these approaches, they just, they just lean on uh, a moving factor. So in the case of your SMS, that moving factor is just usually like a counter in the database, right? Just kind of clicking forward and whatever. And that's, you know, along with uh, all the other secret sauces, uh, you know, generating, uh, you know, these, uh, you know, these temporary uh, codes, if you will. In time-based, the moving factor is time. Uh, and so what that allows you to do is, you know, have an authenticator app um, where you don't actually have to communicate it with, it, with that at all. Um, but, you know, based on a shared secret, again, same as how you do with SMS. Um, uh, you're able to, you know, sync up, uh, these passwords and then they have like kind of a, they sort of explode if you will. Right. You know, so they last for like 30 right. seconds and all that kind so, of thing. And so, so the, yeah, the yeah, library you're highlighting here is Pi OTP, which I guess lets you do this really easy in Python, huh? It does. Yeah. It makes it really, really straightforward. So, um, you know, I've, I've uh, in, in the, in the notes, you know, people will be able to see, I put a couple of, uh, representative, uh, um, you know, functions that you could used to do this, but it's, it's very small amount of code. Basically you generate a secret, 
you store them with your user credentials. Uh, then, uh, you know, when you're actually uh, verifying uh, somebody, you know, they, they come in, you have this, the shared secret in there. They, you know, look, pull up their little authenticator app on their, uh, on their phone. Uh, you know, you know, I think most people know what this looks like, but, uh, we'll do, uh, this there. <laughs> so oh, that's nice, the Google yeah. authenticator app. And, uh, and so it gives you a little code and you can see it ticking down and, and all that kind of stuff. And so instead of getting your SMS, you just pull up your code, you hit your app, you type it in. And then nice. your users are putting that, and then you're just running that through the verifier. And based on this share secret, it says, yeah, you're the real guy. Great. And every 30 seconds, those go away. So even if somebody, you know, just looked at mine for my Google Authenticator, you know, well, you got, you know, 30 seconds to figure out my password. Um, <laughs> exactly. <and, laughs> if you can get into that, uh, that test account that, I, that I'm showing you that for. Um, but yeah, it's, it's super, super simple to implement. The only thing, you know, for the Python crowd here is that, it is helpful from a setup standpoint to do a little bit of front-end work um, uh, because the easiest way for a user to set this up is to scan a QR code. Um, and so you know, we have that implement on the, the front-end um, where you can see um, uh, uh, you know, that QR code and scan it from a setup. But those little functions I put in the show notes, you, know, you just spin up a little URI. That'll, that you can put that into any kind of QR code generator, including Python-based generators if you actually want to do that store the image on the server and then serve it up in our case i actually do that on the javascript side and i put a little link to qr code is just kind of one of the most widely used uh, you know npm uh, packages for that purpose um display that to user they scan it they set it up they pair that first time and then you know takes a little getting used to for the user i think you know at the end of the day sms a little more user friendly uh, just because people are a little bit more familiar with it this isn't a big leap so we went here instead of something like web often, which is, you know, even probably better mm. from a security standpoint, but I think a, a bigger leap for users. So uh, we just think it's a cool little library. It's easy. It's purpose-built. Uh, literally those few lines of code that I put in the show, but it's almost everything that you would need to implement this on the back end. There really isn't anything else. It's, a, it's amazing. I, I've always avoided doing this because I'm like, ah, it's probably kind of complicated. I want to screw it up and unlock people out, but it, it looks really simple and fantastic and, and straightforward. So yeah, this is a, a great suggestion for people. Yeah. Cool. Brian, have you had to do any of this? No, uh, but I do have like yeah, a SaaS app either, on, really. in the works that I, I don't think I'll get that complicated. Because I think I, I think for somebody like like uh, with GitHub, we have to use it uh, like something like that for GitHub now. Or you can, and I have set it up. But the um, uh, but some people, it, for some some kind of apps, you it depends on your audience. Some audiences aren't really going to want that. Sure. So. It also yeah. depends Most on what of you're our protecting. clients are. Yeah, exactly. Most of our clients, you know, are B2B large corporations sort of all over the world. And many of them already have these authenticator apps. And the nice thing about this solution is it works with any of them. So you don't have to, as a business, you don't have to direct your clients to use a particular authenticator app. So if you're using Microsoft or Google or Twilio's Authy or, or any others, you know, you can just plug this in and just use it. Um, you know, we test and validate on those three, but uh, it'll likely work on any of them. And so it's yeah. really nice in that corporate environment to just to slide in. Yeah, and I should have emphasized for this audience, one of the great things about this is SMS is not expensive, but this is free. It's free for you from a developer standpoint, and it's free for your users. These authenticator apps are free downloads. This isn't, you know, you're not imposing any friction on your users from that standpoint. Just a tiny bit of a, a learning curve for them. But I think what you find, like you said, GitHub, you can you know, link an authenticator app to, to GitHub if you want to add 
MFA to your GitHub login, which, you know, I would say most of your listeners probably are, are familiar <laughs> with. And so, you know, if you're wondering about it, I'd encourage you just try that. Download Google Authenticator, Microsoft Authenticator, implement their MFA. You'll see what the experience is like, and, and you'll probably find that not really probably a big hard sell with your, uh, with your clients. Yeah. If in fact, MFA is something you need, as you say, you don't need it, you don't need it. But if you do, you know, you do. And, and, uh, you know, this is a solution I think people should consider because I think SMS, um, you know, is, is fine and great, but obviously the more widespread it becomes, you know, the more likely, you know, uh, people are to attack it. And, uh, the hacks on this are not hard. My favorite one is, uh, using a cell signal booster, which, you know, some of you heard of, especially some of your listeners that don't live in urban, urban areas and whatever. And, and, uh, you know, you know, I'm not encouraging this, but if you poke <laughs> around just a little bit, it's not going to be very hard for you to figure out how to hack a cell signal booster and people don't even know they're attached to it. And you can listen to everything and record all their texts and all that. So yeah, that's a Brian's getting ideas. <laughs> uh, uh, I got to go, guys. I'll, um, no. I, I, I love having this. I use Authy and I just checked my Authy has 45 different accounts doing 2FA, yeah. MFA, oh, well, which is yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I like Authy as well. So. Yeah. Brian, what else we got? Uh, well, I've got a few extras. Uh, do you have any extras? Uh, you know I do. All right. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll do mine first. So let's start with some real quick ones. First of all, um, Mac Rumors uh, points out that machi the machine learning framework PyTorch, traditionally these have been uh, like mainstream GPU, these uh, machine learning training frameworks, and especially focused on NVIDIA, which if you're on a Mac is a problem because you don't have NVIDIA, not even before the M1 stuff you had uh, Radeon chips and stuff. So doing hardware-based machine acceleration was really tricky. They are now supporting Metal on Apple, which means you get GPU accelerated training on the new Apple Silicon Max, including the M1 Ultra and all that stuff. So if people nice. are on, on M1, well, they may check that out. That sounds good. Let's see. I uh, got a message from Harry. Uh, this is a 15-year-old kid who said, hey, I built this learning platform and a bunch of tutorials with my cousin, Anna, who's 14. And they built this app, which I'll link into called Mission Encodable. And you come in and you can do uh, little tutorials and you've got like little lessons and achievements to, to do after and stuff. So anyway, I just thought I'd give him a shout out because it's really cool that a 15 and 14 year old put this together for people. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, two real quick things as well. I use Calendly, Calendly, not misstating that. That's how it's supposed to be. Calendly.com which is great for like sharing your available free time. People can sign up and, and book slots with you. I recently learned about cal.com, which is an open source parallel or equivalent to calendly.com. So if you can self-host it or you have a free version, you can even have them host it for more pro things if you want. But I just thought it's kind of cool. There's an open source cal.com, which is Calendly. And on the same vein, if you've heard about Firebase, which is kind of like the backend platform for so many mobile apps and stuff so you don't have to have a website and an api and a database and users like this would handle all of those things uh for firebase there's i also heard about supabase like super but without the r supabase which is the open source equivalent of that so you can have sort of like the back-end cloud for free for your an open source for your mobile things if you care about that yeah and uh yeah so th those are my my oh i have one more extra i want to show you with you um so we've all heard about uh, PyScript, right? PyScript is awesome. This comes from Anaconda. It's 
takes the C Python runtime and turns it into WebAssembly and then runs it in your browser. And I've been looking at the PyScript.net website and they've got all sorts of cool stuff in there. And if you go to PyScript slash examples, there's actually a, a bunch of examples. You, you showed the one, you covered this last time. I think it was last time or time before. You covered the anti-gravity one and those kinds of things, right? What's lacking from here is anything that looks like a regular application, right? Yeah. So I said, well, the to do app. The to do app is not a regular. You got to come on now. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's you're right, though. That is the absolute closest by far. But everything here says data science, data science. I want Jupyter in the browser, but not with a server. Run it in the browser. And that's fine. But that comes, I think, far short of the potential. Okay. So I, this weekend, I'm like, I'm going to fix this. <laughs> and the way I'm fixing it is with this project in a video that I was working on right before we jumped on, I'll publish it later today, called the PyScript PWA Weather App. So check this out. See this thing here on the screen? This is an application that installs in your dock offline. It installs in your dock. It's written in Python and PyScript and with Python on the front end and has no backend stuff locally, not like Electron or something like that. It's a progressive web app. It downloads all the files, including the 15 megabytes of the Pyodide runtime in PyScript, puts it offline, and when you run it, it just starts instantly. So from a cold launch until you have this thing up and running, it's about two seconds. And it goes out and it talks to an API and gets this cool weather here. And like you can have a little button, you press this refresh button, it goes pop, 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 and it'll refresh. It's as you click it, it's instantaneous, the way it sort of interacts with it. And all of it is written on the front end using stuff that you would recognize, stuff that looks like requests and JSON and Python classes and try accept and everything. That's pretty it's, cool. It is. Here, let me actually pull up a little bit of code really quick just to show you all. So check it out. We've got our regular code. Here's our Flask bit. But if I go to static, there's now a Python folder in static. And you can go to the weather API. And let me make that bigger for the screen. See this code right here? This download a report, type in, goes to report, uh, has this thing that comes back from calling this URL, turns into JSON, does the- It's hardly uh, any code. That, nice. that is running in the browser in the CPython runtime, all of it locally with no download and no slow startup. So That's pretty cool. Anyway, well, I'm going to do a video cool. on that. And I'll, uh, yeah, what do you guys think? It's neat, huh? Yeah, PyScript is. It's a, and that's cool what you've done too. PyScript's interesting to me. I, I'm, I'm interested to see how that- uh, evolves. I'm, I'm sure, you know, like you said, I think most people are using it maybe from a data science standpoint or waiting for it to, you know, mature or whatever, but, um, there's some kind of odd analogs between, you know, how react and some of those things got started here, obviously angled at a different audience. Uh, but I think, you know, there's some really cool yeah. things that could be done with this, uh, you know, as, as you evolve, uh, and, uh, uh interesting that you mentioned this on the show today, because if you look in the, the repo for, uh, PyScript, uh, uh, Tailwind is one of their uh, uh, core dependencies. <laughs> oh, nice. How, how interesting. Yeah, it's all coming together. All coming together. <laughs> so I'll, I'll talk more about it when I release the video later. But I think that this, and the source code is out. I'll, it's linking to GitHub. People can check it out and install it. It's it's really neat. And I think it opens the door. I can see people writing like a Vue.js wrapper. So you create a Python class that sort of parallels Vue or React or something like that. And you could create really neat stuff uh, in this offline sort of progressive web app mode. So we'll see. All right, that's it for my extras. Okay, I've got a few. Um, the the videos for PyCon US 2022 are up. So yay, you can watch them now. Um, 
we'll have a link in the show notes, but you can also just look on YouTube and search for Bike on US. Um, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to I've got a whole stack of ones I want to watch. Um, I unfortunately didn't get a chance to make it this year, so I'm looking forward to, to participating in this way. Uh, second Same. thing I wanted to bring up is, uh, is another podcast. So there's another Python podcast out there called the Sad Python Girls Club. Uh, it's a, it's a, so far they have two episodes. The second episode, they interview Brett Cannon, uh, and it's good. Um, the, they're not actually sad. The sad comes from that. They used to be emo, um, people in when they were young. So I thought that was interesting. So <laughs> yeah, I listened to a lot of the same music. Uh, nice. All right. Congrats to them for starting. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, third thing was, is I'm going to do this publicly to try to get me motivated to finish it. The PyTest course. So, um, uh, yes, I've started work on a PyTest course, um, and it will be uh, through through the uh, Talk Python Michael Kennedy thing. Unless you know, unless it's really terrible, then he probably won't want it there. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it'll be great, Brian. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, yeah. So, um, uh, I man, a couple of days ago, I recorded like 20 minutes worth of video with the mic off. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've done that or two mics on where there's a weird echo. It's offset by 20 milliseconds. And no, so, wow. but I'm, I'm looking forward to getting that out because a lot of people have asked for it. So um, that's in the works. Ah, fantastic. I think that's cool, Brian. You need, you need to finish it. We're all a little, uh, uh, none of us, none of us write enough tests. We need, we need, we need more. We could use the course. Cool. Yeah. <sighs> that's all for me. Better Mark, either you guys, yeah, you got anything else you want to give a shout out to before we wrap it up? I guess no, I better shout that. out. Go ahead, Mark. No, I said I, I better shout out since you uh, highlighted the cheerleaders earlier. Uh, I'm pretty sure that was uh, uh, my daughter Isabel and her friend Olivia and Jess <laughs> listening. So if they've hung with us this long through Python uh, podcast, then I better shout out to them. Thanks. <laughs> right on. That's cool. Uh, and I would just say, if you're interested in any sort of public company, uh, complicated organizational structures like uh, Tesla or uh, Apple or anything, we have some of them on our website on LexChart. And uh, if you want others, just drop us a line and we'll build them. Oh, nice. Cool. Yeah, that's very cool. Yep. All right. Shall we close it out with a joke, Brian? Yes. I, I wanted to come up with something that I felt was a little bit uh, associated with learning to code and being somewhat beginner, even though what these guys built is not at all beginner, but I know that they've been on that path recently. So here we go. So this one is an animated GIF of a very frustrated person carrying their computer out, throwing it in the dumpster <laughs> in the back. It says, programmers, when they finally fix all their syntax errors in their code just to be confronted with a bug. I don't know about you, but I, I remember when I was learning C++, I was so happy when I got my complicated code to compile. And then I realized, no, that's just the beginning of the hair pulling part. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's Ron Swanson from <laughs> <laughs> Love that yeah yeah absolutely all right thanks well, a lot that's all i got brian uh, excellent that was fun uh thanks yep. ben for and mark for showing up and thanks michael as always it's been fun thank you guys yes. you bet it's bye everyone great. bye cheers bye